The righteous man will be glad in the Lord and will take refuge in him. And all the upright at heart will glory. Let's pray together. Father, what can we even say about you today? Lord, if we truly understood your nature, if we truly understood who you were, we would have nothing to say about you. In fact, Lord, if you would not have given us your word, we would not even have words to speak about you. Everything that we know about you is from your word. You have revealed yourself to us, not because we deserve it, but because you desire a relationship with us. You desire to be known. And so this morning, our goal, Lord, in this time is to know you as you have made yourself known in your word. And so we ask today, Father, that you would help me deliver this word to your people in a way that's helpful to them. Every one of us has a different need today, Lord, a different concern, a different uh, struggle in this life. And yet, Lord, you and in, in your power and in, in the power of the Holy Spirit are able to answer uh, each need in every heart today. And so, Lord, we fully rely on you this morning to do the work. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be turning in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 23 as we continue through the Gospel of Matthew here. The text that we're looking at this morning, uh, some commentators will say, uh, is the most uh, severe and angry that we see God in, for sure in the New Testament with Jesus, but in general, this may be one of the greatest texts of God's wrath in the Scriptures. And so as we've moved through the Gospel of Matthew, we've now come to this point, and this is, again, part of his final discourse before he goes to the cross. This is the last opportunity that he has to speak to the public about who he is, about who the religious leaders are, and about God's judgment of them. And so as we find ourselves at the, at the, near the end of this conversation, First, he allowed them to ask him questions. Then he began to question the Pharisees. And now he's speaking to the crowds and calling the Pharisees out publicly in front of the crowds. This would be the final blow to the Pharisees before they were able to have him crucified. This was the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. And you'll understand why as we read this. So if you found your way there, we're going to be in Matthew 23. We're going to begin reading in verse 13 this morning, if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of, God, the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men. Which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? 
And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You may be seated. So as you can see, Jesus is severely dealing with the Pharisees here. It's, it's time to pull all the stops out. He's not trying to make friends anymore. He's not trying to get followers anymore. He knows that his time has come. And he's not going to let the things that he's seen go. The title of the message this morning is, When Leaders Lose Their Fear of God. When Leaders Lose the Fear of God. So these teachers at this time know that Jesus is the Messiah. It's evident from his miracles. It's evident from his teaching. It's evident from the fulfillment of prophecy. The scripture says at the triumphal entry, even the small children recognized that he was the Messiah when they called him uh, the son of David. So they know that he's the Messiah. So it's not as though they think that he's a false teacher that they're trying to destroy. They think that he's a direct threat to their power and their authority over the people of Israel. The big picture is this. Why is Jesus so angry here? It's because false teachers within the church are more dangerous than false ideologies in the culture. We would be remiss to not point out this morning that much of the strife that we have in churches today, especially in light of the season of history that we're in with COVID and these things, is people getting upset about ideologies in the culture. The reality is it always has been true the church has survived many cultures, many forms of government, many economic changes, many persecutions, and somehow it's managed to survive that. The one thing that can actually destroy the church is false teaching from inside of the church. And Jesus recognizes this, which is why he knows that he cannot let this leadership continue. The leadership of the Pharisees, the way that they're doing things, the hypocrisy cannot continue. So Jesus knows that his number one threat uh, to his mission is not the Romans, even though they were the ones that crucified him, it's not the people who may or may not disagree with him. It's the Jewish leaders that are the greatest threat to his ministry and to God's plan, which is why here he is addressing them directly, and he goes right to the heart of the issue. There's a few things that leaders deny whenever they lose the fear of God, and that's what I want us to look at this morning. The first thing that leaders deny when they lose the fear of God is they deny God's hospitality. Look at verses 13 through 15 again. 
But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. You're not going to see that verse cross-stitched on a pillow. So everybody out there that thinks Jesus just, you know, wants to snuggle you and, and, and is totally fine with your sin and everything else, they haven't read the Bible. The, the cultural narrative that we have in America of, well, I just wish Christians were more like Jesus. What they mean is, I just wish Christians would stop talking about my sin. They don't understand what Jesus preached. This is, this is evident of that. Uh, Jesus uh, did not sugarcoat anything when he preached, and especially not in this passage. I do want to point out here, uh, if you haven't noticed already, depending on, on what translation you're reading this morning, your translation may or may not contain verse 14 here. So verse 14 of chapter 23 is what we call a textual variant. We've talked about that in previous passages in Matthew, but just to give you an idea, um, if you are reading a King James Version this morning, verse 14 will be included. If you're reading an English Standard Version this morning, you will see it switch from uh, verse uh, 13 to verse 15, and then your verse 14 will actually be in the footnotes of your Bible. If you're reading the New American Standard this morning, which is what I'm reading out of, you will see that verse, but it will be bracketed to indicate that it's a textual variant. Essentially, uh, this same verse is in Mark 12:40 and in Luke 20:47, so it is a biblical verse. This is something that Jesus said, but some of the early manuscripts uh, don't have that particular verse in that particular place in the book. And so I'll just point that out in case you're reading along and you're wondering, what, where is he getting this from or what's going on? So the point that I want you to see here is, is when leaders lose the fear of God, they deny God's hospitality. Why do they do that? One, they're standing in the road. There's a road that we have to, to go down, a, a narrow road, the, the way that Jesus talks about it. And they stand in the road blocking people from coming to Jesus. We should be more concerned when we go out and share the gospel in the community about bringing people to Christ than bringing people to Barberville. So this afternoon, for instance, some of you will go to the parade. And tomorrow night, we will be in the parade in Waynesville, and we will give the gospel to people. And, and, and we're really not inviting people to come to Barberville, although they're welcome to come here. We're really, we're really telling them, we're proclaiming the kingship of Jesus, uh, who has died for the, for the forgiveness of sins. And so uh, we don't want to stand in anybody's way when they're coming to Christ. And some people will come to Christ in different ways than maybe we did. Or they may go to different churches than we do. And that's okay, as long as that church is preaching the gospel. I think sometimes we get so concerned of, well, they need to come to my church that has the same music that I have and the same preaching style that I have and the exact same doctrine that I have. And those things are all important. Obviously, we do those things for a reason here. But at the same time, we never want to be an obstacle to a person who is sincerely coming to Christ to say, well, you have to meet all of the standards of my church and what I think that everything is supposed to be in order to come to Christ. That, that's, that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. And the Pharisees were doing this. Well, if you really want to be an obedient Jew, if you really want to please God, you have to be a Pharisee. You have to follow our rules. You have to do things the way that we want to do. And so they're standing in the road where these people were seeking God, and they're even in following the Messiah, and the Pharisees are standing in the way, blocking them from being able to follow Jesus as the Messiah. So they deny God's hospitality. God commands all men everywhere to repent. That's what the Scripture says. The invitation to become a Christian, the invitation to have your sins forgiven, goes out to every person in the world. There is nobody that's excluded from that. There's no type of person that is excluded from that. Jesus says, I will not turn away anyone who comes to me. 
And so God has tremendous hospitality. He's never rejected anyone who has truly come to him in repentance and faith. And yet people who were trying to do this and trying to follow Christ, trying to follow the repentance that John preached before Christ, were being blocked by the religion of, of the Pharisees. So they stand in the road. They're out, they also strive for reward when they deny God's hospitality. Why? Uh, false teachers leave their followers in the cage stage. What do I mean by that? Some of, some of the younger uh, of you understand what the cage stage is. So the cage stage, this is something that you observe in any kind of ideology, whether it's religious, political, whatever. The cage stage is, is when you first come to the realization of, of a very important truth, a life-changing truth, and you need, somebody needs to put you in a cage for a while so that you don't hurt somebody. We call that the cage stage. So for instance, uh, somebody becomes convicted about uh, something in like politics or even theology, and they feel like, this is the biggest deal ever, and everybody has to agree with me about it. And now that I think about it, only me and my three friends are actually saved because we're the only ones that believe this particular doctrine. And a lot of us, I see a lot of you smiling because you've been there before. I've been there too. And, and you discover that and you think, is anybody else a Christian other than me and my church? The answer is yes. And that's called the sage stage. When you move on beyond that and you realize that you can be saved, uh, you're saved by Jesus and not by theology. When you get to that point, you can calm down a little bit and come out of the cage and be able to still have your convictions and not hurt anybody. And so what we see happening is that false teachers, they never get their followers to the, the sage stage. So they get converted and they become very zealous about the wrong things. Uh, and we see the same thing with the Pharisees. What's, what's more strict than a Pharisee? A new Pharisee is more strict than a Pharisee. It's, it's the same thing that we see with uh, someone that comes to some political realization. Maybe they change political parties or something like that. And all of a sudden, everybody in that old political party is the devil. And everybody that agrees exactly with me on everything with politics, that person's right, which is like me and two people are right about politics and everybody else is wrong. This is why these issues are just so divisive. The Pharisees did the same thing. Well, if you're going to come in, you've got to come in all the way. You've you got to do all the stuff. You've got to follow all the rules. You've got to have the right appearance, the right actions, the right position in society. You've got to do it all right. And they never move beyond this point of what Jesus was preaching, which is God is not impressed by all of your outward appearances. Uh, God, God looks on the heart, as we've also talked about recently. And why is this? Because at this time in history, uh, there was a movement within Judaism to be more evangelistic. Traditionally, Judaism has not been evangelistic and isn't today. They're not concerned with uh, people converting to Judaism. They're happy to just be their own people, and they think that it's fine uh, for, for them to be the chosen people of God, or they don't need anybody else to come in. But at this point in history, somewhat politically motivated again, because the more Jews there were, the more opposition there was to Rome, they wanted Gentiles to be converted to Judaism. And so there were essentially two stages of conversion. One was just uh, acknowledging the God of the Bible and participating in some of the festivals and things like that, and then there was a proselyte, which was a full convert to Judaism, which even uh, included circumcision and things like that. And so there were Gentiles that would go uh, to the full extent to become fully Jewish. They were considered a prize because it was difficult to get somebody to do that, as you can imagine. That's a very high commitment to ask uh, somebody to do. And so if a Pharisee was able to convert a Gentile, not just to become a Jew, that wasn't enough. But to, to become a full Jew and to become a Pharisee, that was like a trophy for them. And so they were very uh, 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 wrapped up in doing this. And Jesus is pointing out here, God is, in, is not inviting them to become a Pharisee. That's not what he's inviting them to do. He's not even inviting them to become a Jew, as we see later. 
He's inviting them to repent and trust in Christ alone for their salvation. That is the invitation that Jesus was giving then, and that's the same invitation that we give now. So what are some teachers like this? I, I want to give you a couple of practical examples because you might be thinking to yourself, okay, well, in our day, uh, we don't uh, see this as much, or you might have a particular false teacher or something you think in, in mind. Uh, I just want to mention two examples that I pointed out. There's a lot of examples. Two examples of people who are blocking the road to people who are trying to come to Christ. The first one uh, comes from the Council of Trent by the Roman Catholic Church, uh, where the Roman Catholic Church uh, officially uh, anathematized the gospel. In other words, they said, if you believe the gospel, uh, you are damned. So the Council of Trent, Canon 30 says, if anyone saith that after the grace of justification has been received, to every penitent sinner the guilt is remitted, and the debt of eternal punishment is blotted out in such wise that there remains not any debt of temporal punishment to be discharged either in this world or in the, in the, the next in purgatory, before the entrance to the kingdom of heaven can be opened to him, let him be anathema. In other words, if you believe today that Jesus Christ has paid for all of your sins and that you are completely debt-free before God and that when you die, you will be accepted into heaven without suffering, then the Roman Catholic Church says that you're damned, that there's no way that you can be saved if you believe that according to the Council of Trent, which the Roman Catholic Church still teaches. However, Romans 8.1 says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus which is just one biblical example of why that is a false teaching. So what are they doing? They're blocking people with the sacraments, with penance, with confession, with purgatory, with all these other obstacles to get into the kingdom of heaven that they must do. Another example, a more modern example, is Bill Johnson, the pastor of Bethel Church in Redding, California, who said in in, uh, his book, The Supernatural Power of a Transformed Mind, Like many pastors, I foolishly thought that if you delighted yourself in the Lord, he would change your desires by telling you what to desire. But that's not at all what this means. That verse literally means God wants to be impacted by what you think and dream. God is after your desires. That is false teaching. God is not concerned with your desires. God does what he wants. He does what is right. The world belongs to him. You belong to him. Unbelievers belong to him. The devil belongs to him. Everything belongs to him. He is not interested in our opinions about his ruling of the universe or his plan for our lives or, or anything else. He has already made the plan before we were born. The Bible is clear about that. And so what is this man doing? Contrary to what the Roman Catholic Church is doing, what he's doing is standing in the way of the gospel by, by opening up another door and saying, uh, oh, Jesus said you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him in order to be saved. You don't have to do that. Actually, you need to not deny yourself. The the way to really get what God wants for you in life is for you to actually please yourself, for you to actually do whatever it is that you desire, for you to actually fulfill those desires. That's actually the way to get into heaven. And so what is he doing? He's standing in front of the door that leads to heaven and pointing people to another door and doing that. That's, That's an example of what's happening here. When leaders lose the fear of God, they deny God's hospitality. So every person must choose a door to open and a path to walk in. Jesus said there's a a narrow path and there's a wide path, and the wide path leads to destruction. All of us are going to have to choose which door do we open. There's many doors, many religions, many claims to salvation or exaltation or uh, non-existence in the case of Buddhism, which doesn't sound very appealing to me personally, or a a lot of other religions offer their doors and we all have to choose which door we're going to go through and, and what path that we're going to go on. But here's, here's the trick. 
this is, this is the secret, right, that we're sharing with people. There's only one door in that whole hallway of doors that's opened by grace. There's only one door that's open from the inside. All the other doors we have to open from the outside. There's one door that is opened up and that we are called into, but we're not the ones that open it up. It's opened up by grace, and that is the gospel. That is what Christ has done, that he was the one that opened the door for us. False teachers stand in, the, in that doorway, and they bid men and women to choose another door. So which door have you chosen this morning? Have you chosen one of the abundant uh, examples of false gospels out there, or have you walked into the door that was opened for you by Christ? The second thing I, I want you to see here, when leaders lose the fear of God, they deny God's property. They deny God's property. Look again at verses 16 through 22. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by both the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So they deny God's property. What is God's property? Everything. As we said, God owns everything. So he doesn't just own the gold of the temple. He owns the temple and everything in it. He doesn't just own the altar. He owns the altar and the sacrifice and the person that makes the sacrifice and the animal and the person that raised the animal and the person that raised that person. He owns everything. And so they deny God's property. How do they do that? Well, for one, they value the visible over the invisible. This is one of the big problems with the Pharisees. They value the visible over the invisible. Uh, one of the uh, early church fathers, one of them said, uh, they were stupid and blind who venerated gifts that were sanctified while they allowed sanctity itself to pass by. They were so concerned about making the right sacrifices that they didn't realize that the Lamb of God was right in front of them. They were more concerned about lambs that cannot take away sins. Origen said uh, the oaths that they're making assume that what is sanctified is above the one who sanctifies. So if I, if I make an oath to the gold of the temple, that's more than me making an oath to God. So what does that mean? That means I'm saying that the visible is more important than the invisible. I can't see God, so I'm not going to make an oath by him, but I can see this gold over here. And Jesus is saying, if that's the case, then you don't understand who God is. You, you don't know. Jesus tells his followers uh, in, in the Gospels further on that they should not swear oaths because their integrity should speak for itself when they make commitments. In other words, let your yes be yes and your no be no. So we don't have to, to swear, you know, I swear on this or I swear on that or I promise or I whatever to do this. It's a matter of if I say that I do it, then I'm going to do it. If I say I'm not going to do it, then I'm going to do it. And your belief on whether I say that isn't based on some oath that I make or some promise that I keep. It's based on my character and my integrity as someone who is a truthful person. So if you have to swear oaths, that's actually a character problem because you're trying to convince somebody to believe you when you're not actually a believable person. That's generally how that works. So they value the visible over the invisible, but they also value the form over the fulfillment. They value the form over the fulfillment. So they focused more on the types than the archetype. What does that mean? One of the things that I never heard uh, preached growing up in church was what's called typology or pictures in the Old Testament of Jesus. 
And when you begin to learn that and you begin to see Jesus in the Old Testament, you see the gospel in the Old Testament, it makes the Old Testament come alive to you. There are so many things that are, that are so rich now when I read the Old Testament that I did not re- realize. One of them I'll mention later in the message, specifically from Leviticus, who's like, who cares about Leviticus? We're not Jews. The gospel is all over Leviticus. When you look at those laws and those rituals and things, it's all over there. It all is a type that points to an archetype. What is the archetype? The archetype is the fulfillment. It's the thing that it's pointing to. Hebrews says that they are types and shadows. Well, what is a shadow? It's something that has the form of something that's real, but it's not the same as the thing that's real. And so they were focused on more on the types than they were on the archetype. Well, who is the archetype? Christ. He is the Lamb of God. He is the prophet. He is the priest. He is the king. He's the temple. He's all these kind of things. Uh, all the fulfillment of everything that they've seen, every ritual that they did pointed to Jesus. Every single thing that they did pointed to Jesus. And yet they were so busy looking at the forms that they missed the actual archetype. They missed the point of what is all this for to begin with? Who is all this for? Who is all of this even about that we've been practicing for thousands of years? Even today, Jews will celebrate things like Passover. And if you look at the Passover laws and the gospel on Passover, they still don't get it. A lot of them still don't. They don't understand the rituals that they do. And as a believer, you watch this and you're like, well, that's clearly a picture of Christ. And they're like, well, yeah, whenever the Messiah comes, it's going to be a picture. And we're like, no, he, he already did it. Like, it's already fulfilled. This is, this is just the form. Why, why would we have the form when we have the actual archetype? We have the fulfillment in front of us. So they were focused in the wrong place. They were denying God's property because they didn't have fear of God. Uh, Theodore of Heraclius said, they were rejecting the Christ who sanctifies Moses while simultaneously praising the law. Just as the law was praiseworthy, not because it possesses the types and the symbols, but because it prefigures the true mystery of worship in Christ. In the same way, the gold is precious because of the one who sanctifies the temple, and heaven is beautiful because of the God who sanctifies it and dwells within it. I I read the end of Revelation to my kids the other day where it's talking about the new Jerusalem, and you listen to the descriptions of all the jewels and the gold streets and things are gold that's so pure it's like glass you know, all these kind of things. And you think, wow, that is just really beautiful and incredible. Well, that's like paying attention to all that and forgetting who built it and who it's all for anyways. So all of those things are like, okay, well, these are the most beautiful elements in the earth that God has made to try to describe his own beauty. And yet we're looking at that. That would, that would be like me paying more attention to my wife's wedding band than to my wife. Well, that's a really nice ring. It's really pretty. This is what size it is. This is what stones it has on it. Isn't it beautiful? Everybody look at the ring. Instead of saying, that's my bride. That's who the ring is for. That's the whole point of the ring is my bride. Like, I, I, I don't want to spend time with a ring. I want to spend time with my bride. And yet the groom, Christ, is here in front of them and they've done everything to prepare the way for him. And yet they're rejecting him and saying, you can't come to your own wedding. And you, and you wonder why he's a little bit angry about that? I can tell you what, if I showed up to marry my wife and they stopped me at the door and said, sorry, you're not able to come in today, I would be very angry about that. So they deny God's property because they have no fear of God. The third thing I want you to see is when leaders, when leaders lose the fear of God, they deny God's priority. They deny God's priority. Look at verses 23 and 24. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. 
But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. So they deny God's priority. How do we, how do we see that here? The first is that they're satisfied with little. These are, these are spices. Most of them were like little uh, garden herbs they would use to season food. Not really required uh, to be tithed necessarily. But have you ever, have you ever uh, cooked or been to a restaurant where the seasoning made all the difference in the meal? I, I enjoy cooking, and, and there's a few tricks that I've learned with certain things that I cook that are a little bit different than the way people cook things, and usually it has to do with the seasonings. Uh, for instance, uh, one of my favorite combinations with a sweet potato is actually uh, salt and lime juice, which is not something that most people would think of, but go home and try it. It's very good. The seasonings that are added to that make it completely different from something else that you've had. The difference between a sweet potato with lime juice and salt on it and a sweet potato casserole is a big difference, even though it's basically made out of the same vegetable, out of uh, sweet potatoes. And so the seasoning can make all the difference, but it's not in and of itself. Have you ever been to a nice restaurant and the portion was too small? You, get, you go on a date or you do something like that and you spend all this money for this thing and it tastes good, but it's, you know, it's this big and, and you're just thinking, really, did I just pay all that for this? Like, I guess we have to order dessert now because I'm still hungry or you're just kind of struggling through the meal and trying to justify like, okay, that was pretty good, but was it like $50 good? Probably not. Um, and so you, you deal with that. That's basically what Jesus is saying God is like here. God is, ex- God is expecting them to prepare a meal for him. And what is that meal? That meal consists of justice and mercy and faithfulness. And what does he receive instead? He receives the seasonings of the meal. It would be like somebody bringing out a plate to you that you ordered that has like some pepper and some dill or mint on it. That's not going to be satisfying to you. Now, if you add those things to the meal, they can make the meal really good, but they're not a meal in and of, the, in and of themselves. And that's the point that Jesus is making to them is, hey, it's not wrong for you to tithe off of those things. That's great if you want to tithe off of those things. But if that's all that you're offering God and you're not giving him the, the important things to him, his priorities... He's not satisfied with that. That's not good enough for him. And so forgetting God's priority is like putting these nice seasonings on a dinner plate that has no actual food on it. They're good things, but they're never going to satisfy God's hunger. And think about this. The Jews tithed, if it, MacArthur says, if you add up the, all the tithes that they did, they tithed a little over 23% of their annual income. So a lot of people here tithe, and they, they think that means a tenth, so it's 10% or whatever. For the Jews, it was actually... Uh, 10% seasonally, and then with the other offerings and requirements and things for the temple ministry and all that that went on that, it was actually closer to like 23%. And so Jesus is saying, that's fine for you to do that, but it doesn't matter if you give 50%. It doesn't matter if you give 100% of everything that you have. If you don't do justice, mercy, and faithfulness, God considers that to just be garnish on top of what he's actually asked you to do. And so even today, there can be a temptation of, well, I really want to honor God, so I need to give more money. Well, if that's what God's put on your heart, then you need to obey and do that. But the thing is, you can give every dime that you have and still be in sin and still not satisfy God if you're not doing the things that he has prioritized, that he has said are most important to him. So the question is not what's most important to us. The question is, what is his priority? What has he said is most important? So they're satisfied with just a little bit. They're not, it doesn't bother them that they're not giving God what he demands. But the other thing is, is they settle for less. They settle for less than what God has commanded them to do. So this whole 
illustration that Jesus gives, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. This is something that people probably would have laughed at when they heard that. The reason why is a, a gnat and a camel are both unclean animals, according to Judaism. So they're both unclean animals. And these gnats would have a tendency to get into the wine if they had open wine containers. And so a lot of times they would take like a piece of cloth, like a cheesecloth or something like that, and they would strain the wine through that and it would get the wine all the way through and leave all the bugs and stuff out. Since bugs were unclean, they didn't want to eat them by accident because it would make them unclean also. And so Jesus is saying you would go through all of the effort to strain out the wine through a piece of cloth so that you don't get a gnat in and then you'll turn around and swallow an entire camel which is the largest unclean animal that they would have known of. And he's saying that, that, that's how dumb it is for you to think that all your religion and all, all, all of your practices and all your fancy clothes and your actions, that's how dumb it is for you to think that all of that impresses God when God can actually see your heart and he actually sees what you do. It's like you swallowing a camel and straining out a gnat. That might look really good in front of some people, but God is not impressed. He's calling them out. He's mocking the absurdity of their big religion and their little faith. They had a whole lot of religion and just a little bit of faith. And that's, that's an easy trap that any of us can fall into. William Barclay said, uh, There is many a man who wears the right clothes to church, carefully hands in his offering to the church, adopts the right attitude at prayer, is never absent from the celebration of the sacrament, and who is not doing an honest day's work and is irritable and bad-tempered and mean with his money. There are women who are full of good works and who serve on all kinds of committees and whose children are lonely for them at night. There is nothing easier than to observe all the outward actions of religion and yet be completely irreligious. That's what he's accusing them of here is their, their profession, their appearance, their, all their time is spent of being religious in front of people, but on the inside there's no, there's no true religion. There's no real change that's happened. They have not been born again. So here's the irony when it, when it comes to service here as far as priorities, because he's talking about tithing. We would understand that in the, te- in, in the context of giving money or serving to the church or doing these kind of things, which has been a theme lately, as we pointed out. But here's the irony of it. As much as Jesus has exhorted us to serve the church more in recent weeks, he's now showing us that doing the work itself isn't enough. If we serve from a place of spiritual emptiness or disobedience, we obey in vain. Serving is good, but loving is better. The desire to serve grows as our love for Christ and his people grows. God does not call us into our roles through guilt and shame. He calls us by changing our affections so that we come to him willingly. He did this when we first trusted Christ, and he does it when we serve in the church. And so, should you serve in the church? Yes. Should you do it out of guilt and shame? No. Should you do it out of a place of spiritual weakness and emptiness? No. That would be bad for you to do that. It would be bad for the church for you to do that. Instead... Love Christ and love your neighbor. And as you're doing that, ask yourself the question, when I'm being called to love Christ and to love my neighbor and to love my church, uh, where, am I, where do my affections lie? What, do I, what would I love doing for God? Not, not, you know, did somebody call me up or is somebody harassing me or whatever, but what's something that I could do for God that I would just love to do? Just to show my love to him, to show my, my love to other people. And that's how you find the joy in serving. It's not checking a box of, you know, I, I met this requirement or I did this thing or that. That's not what he's asking. That's what the Pharisees were doing. They checked all the boxes and Jesus said, that's not good enough. But instead the question is, uh, what are my gifts? What is my heart? What are my passions? What are my affections saying? God, here's something that I can do for you that I'm just doing because I love you. 
And it may not be on a piece of paper. It may not be a checkbox. It may not even be something that anybody even sees. There's a lot of things that happen around this building during the week that most of you don't see, that the pastor sees because we're here. But there's a lot of people that do unseen things out of love. Nobody makes them do it, but they come and do it. The fourth thing and final thing that I want you to see in this text is when leaders lose the fear of God, they deny God's acuity. They deny his acuity. Look at verses 25 through 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So they deny God's acuity. What does that mean? The word acuity means a precision or a sharpness. In other words, God's vision is very sharp. He sees everything. He sees not only the outside, but the inside. He even sees the desires and the intentions of our heart before we even do something. He sees all of those things. And when leaders lose the fear of God, they deny his acuity. They, they deny his ability to see into their souls, to see into their hearts, to see their intentions and their motivations. So they think God cannot see them. And that's why they act the way that they do. They think God cannot see them. Jesus is saying here that it is worse for a Jewish person to become a Pharisee than to touch a dead body. Think about that. That's a big insult. Like one of the worst things that you could do to defile yourself as a Jewish person is to have to touch a dead body, especially at Passover, because it would disqualify you from being able to participate in Passover. And Jesus is saying, you know what's worse than touching a dead body on your way to Passover? Being a Pharisee is worse than that. Now, if you want to make them mad, like I said, Jesus is just kind of going for the throat here. He's not playing with them anymore. And it's very evident from the way that he's saying things. The other thing is, all, all symptoms are resolved when the source of the problem is resolved. Isn't that true? We could probably all name some kind of medical issue or something that we've had. And sometimes you go and, you know, you take a Tylenol or your doctor gives you a prescription for something and it kind of helps you feel better for a little while. But until you find out the source of like, okay, I used to not have this problem and now I do, what changed that actually caused me to have this problem? When you get to the source of that and you deal with that, all of the symptoms work themselves out. Uh, I, I have food allergies and recently discovered some new food allergies. That has uh, affected a whole lot of other health conditions that I had that I didn't even know were necessarily related. But once I began to avoid that food that was making me sick, I didn't realize how much it was making me sick until I removed that and all these other things began to clear up and begin to get better, these symptoms. And what Jesus is saying here is, listen, you, you can take Tylenol all day long, but if you've got cancer... <laughs> and you don't get surgery or you don't get some kind of treatment, that Tylenol might make you feel better for a little while, but ultimately it's, you're going to die. That's what's going to happen. And he's saying the same thing with sin. You can, you can make it look really good on the outside for a while, but in the end, it's going to get you in the end. So they think that God cannot see them, but they also think that God will not judge them. And this is really, this is really the, the culmination here. They think that God will not judge them. One commentator said the Jews washed themselves, their clothing, and their utensils as often as they entered the temple or offered sacrifices on solemnities, but they never washed themselves from sin. As much as they washed. That saved them during the time of the plague. 
during the time uh, during the the dark ages during the plagues the jews were some of the only ones to survive in large populations because of their ceremonial washings because god knew what he was doing when he told them to stay clean and that actually helped them in that and yet this commentator is pointing out the one thing they were never able to to wash off was their sin as as much washing as they did so this whitewashed tombs we, we you guys if you've grown up in church you've heard this phrase a lot like a whitewashed tomb or cleaning the cup you've heard these things what is this about i thought this was interesting so the Jews whitewashed the tombs with lime. They would get lime powder, and they would make this whitewash uh, during the month of Adar, which is uh, close to Passover, the, and it's after the rainy season. So what happened was the rainy season would come. It would wash off all the lime off the tombs, so they would just look like regular rocks on the side of the road or whatever. And so after the rainy season, right before Passover, they would come and whitewash all of the tombs. And the reason why they would do that is so that travelers who were coming in for Passover, remember there was sometimes up to 2 million people traveling into Jerusalem at this time, would see the whitewashed tombs so that they would know not to touch them because if they touched them by accident, they would become unclean. It would take at least a week or more for them to become ritually clean again, and they would end up missing Passover. And so it was a marker to them of stay away from these places uh, because they will make you unclean. And so uh, they did this during Passover every year. So this would have been an object lesson when Jesus is telling them, you guys are just like those whitewashed tombs over there. Everybody knows what they are because they saw them on their way into town. Hey, you guys have seen those whitewashed tombs that look really clean on the outside, but they're actually full of dead bodies and, and nastiness and they'll make you unclean. That's what a Pharisee is. They look really clean on the outside, but if you, if you believe their doctrine, if you follow their teaching, they're actually, they will actually defile you and make you unclean before God if you follow their teachings. It's a very harsh accusation that he's bringing to them. And it was a very potent object lesson for people who probably could have looked somewhere nearby and actually seen a whitewashed tomb. And Jesus said, that's what a Pharisee is like. Uh, he was severely accusing them here. But there's something interesting. I, I mentioned earlier the typology in the Old Testament. Leviticus 11.33 distinguishes earthen vessels from other vessels, metal, stone, these other things by saying that if something is defiling them, they must be broken. So if you have a plate or something that's made out of a metal or something that's made out of stone or something that's made out of wood, there were all kinds of regulations in Leviticus for how to sterilize those things, how to make them clean. The one thing that there wasn't is an earthen vessel. If it's an earthen vessel and something goes into it that defiles it, the only thing that can be done is it's broken. According to God's law, it must be broken. You must make a new earthen vessel and you must put something clean into it. That's exactly what God's done with us. The Bible says that we are earthen vessels. Adam was made from the dust. And Adam put something unclean into us that defiled us in the garden. And the only way in order for us to be made clean again is to be broken. We must be broken in the same way that that vessel is broken. And then God must remake a new earthen vessel and put something clean into it, which is his Holy Spirit. And if you're in Christ this morning, you've been born again. You are a new creature. You've been remade, and God has put his spirit into you so that instead of receiving a sin nature, you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, according to Paul. And that's good news this morning. And so praise be to God that we are not receiving the condemnation that these Pharisees received. That instead, we have been given a new nature, that we're not who we used to be anymore. And that instead of being a whitewashed tomb, instead of us trying to clean the outside, we don't have to impress each other. We don't have to impress God. God knows who we are. 
We, know, we, we can fully acknowledge that he sees us. The Pharisees couldn't do that. They wanted to pretend that he couldn't see. But we're not going to deny his hospitality. We're not going to deny his property. We're not going to deny his priority. And we're not going to deny his acuity. We're going to say, you are God. You are holy. We are not. We confess that. And yet his response is still, I will receive you anyways. My hospitality is so great that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And that's the good news this morning. And so God is hospitable. He welcomes everyone who will come to him. He owns everything and is worthy of everything. His priorities should be our priorities. And he sees us as we are, and he still loved us. Father, this morning, we thank you for that great love that you proved in in Christ. Lord, we, we don't have to wonder how you feel about us this morning as your people. We don't have to wonder if you're angry with us because we already saw your anger at the cross. We don't have to wonder if we stand under your judgment this morning because we saw you judge your son. And Lord, we don't have to wonder if the resurrection is coming for us because we saw him raised from the grave. And Lord, we have great hope this morning, not in our own goodness as these Pharisees did. Lord, forgive us if we have participated in any of the religion of the Pharisees, if we've turned to the idols of works or we trusted in anything other than your son for our salvation. Lord, we repent this morning and we ask for your grace. Lord, if there's one here today that has never done that, Lord, we just ask that today would be the day that your Holy Spirit would open their eyes. These Pharisees were blind, as Jesus said. They, they couldn't even see the condition they were in. And all of us were blind at one time or another until you opened our eyes, Lord. And so we ask that you would open the eyes of each one that's here today, whether that's someone who's trusting in you or someone who's not, that all of us would see you rightly and see ourselves rightly and that we would receive this great offer of mercy that you've extended to us. And it's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.